Thanks, brother. All right, I want to um, take a moment here and ask you to do two things. If you can go into your bulletin and pull out this little uh, advertisement for VBS as far as uh, ways that you can serve or help or donate things. It says, Ahoy, mateys, on top. That's uh, everybody's favorite greeting. Um, but I would love for you to look at that and see what needs are still left. And then in the seat back pocket in the chair in front of you or one of the chairs relatively in front of you, see if there's a little invitation in there and you can pull those out and take those with you. And what we would really love for you to do is take that invitation and give it to friends or neighbors, uh, people that you know that have young children that may be interested in having them come to our VBS this summer. When we, when we think of VBS, we really want to think of two things. One, that it's a great opportunity for us to teach our children the truths of the gospel uh, and for them to get to know some other adults in the church because we are an intergenerational body of Christ. And, and that's really important. And the other thing that we want to see our VBS as is a way to reach out to the community, to tell families all over East Orlando here that we've got a great opportunity for their children to come and be loved and be cared for and be taught uh, the amazing truths of the gospel. And it also gives us an opportunity to connect with their parents. So just want to encourage you to take one of those invitations and extend that invitation to somebody that you know that has young children. And we'll pray that God will use our VBS in a mighty way as he always does. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 as we continue our sermon series on the I Am sayings in the Gospel of John. If you're going to use one of the big blue Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 1146. John 14, 1 through 11. Kids, if you're tracking the word of the day, it's heaven. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you now that we can gather together around your word. Holy Spirit, 
We ask that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear on a day when your church all around the world is celebrating Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We want to thank you and praise you that you, Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin as well as open our eyes to the glory of our Savior. And we pray that you'll do that now as we look in this passage. We pray that you'd help us to grow. Pray that you'd help us to see the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would equip us and empower us to make disciples. That you would help us to be excited to run with the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is the second to last sermon in the series on the I Am sayings. We've got one more next week. And uh, really, this is maybe one of the more famous of Jesus's I Am sayings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is a powerful statement, of course. And I want you to think about when it is that he says this. Because the reality is he says this when his disciples are feeling a tremendous amount of uncertainty in their hearts. If you were to look at John 13... Uh, Right before this happens, Jesus has explained to them that he's going to be going away and that they can't come where he's going to, at least not till later. And Peter is there kind of saying, well, why can't we just go with you right now? And you can see in Peter and in the disciples really this this uncertainty and this worry about what is life going to be like if Jesus goes away? They've been walking with him, following him, trusting him for these three years now and now Jesus is saying he's going to go away. And it, and, and it generates this tremendous uncertainty in their hearts. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know where they're going to go. And I think what's powerful about this is this is the context in which Jesus makes this statement. Now, you and I don't know what it's like to be in the physical presence of Jesus like they did. But ultimately, we do know what it feels like to feel very uncertain about What's next? What's going to happen? What am I going to do? Where are we going to go? And I would imagine in a room this size, most people, if not all of us, at least some of us, know that we're facing something uh, where we just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what to do. And that that uncertainty might be really uh, eating away at us, paralyzing us even. Maybe it has something to do with your job. What's going to happen with my job? Maybe it's something with your kids. Maybe it's something with your health. Whatever it is, we all go through these times where we feel tremendously worried and upset, scared, because we're uncertain about what's ahead. And when Jesus says this, he's saying it to his disciples in the context of them being very worried, very uncertain, and it calms them. He says it to be comforting to them, to give them comfort in this moment i think that's it's so powerful that what he does when they're feeling really uncertain about what's going to happen he points them to the future this glorious future that they're going to have with him so that's what we want to see this morning that because jesus is the way the truth and the life when we're facing uncertainty we can take comfort in our guaranteed glorious future with god knowing that no matter what happens between now and then in the end We have this guaranteed, glorious future with God because of Christ. And so we're going to talk about this in three ways. We'll talk about the best part of heaven, and then the means to heaven, and third, the certainty. The best part, the means, and the certainty of heaven. So let's take a look. Keep your Bibles open. Look at verses 1 through 3. 
Notice here, when we're talking about the best part of heaven, what is the best part of heaven? Uh, He says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. And you got to stop there for a second and realize that what he's saying now, this is meant to comfort them, and the key role is believing what he's going to say. So when we are very uncomfortable or scared because of uncertainty, the number one thing we need to do is believe these things. Believe in Christ. What does he want them to believe? Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I think one of the things that we can see then from this is when we're facing uncertainty, we need to believe that we do have this glorious future with Christ. That's the key. Okay, that we, we would believe deeply that we have this glorious future and what will be glorious about it is that we are with Him. No matter what happens between now and then, we will be with Him. Look at how much emphasis He makes on Himself. He talks about my Father's house. I go to prepare. I will come again. Take you to myself that where I am you may be also. You see what He's getting at? He's getting at the fact that the best part of heaven is to be with Him. It's to be in his presence, in the face of his disciples' uncertainty. He's pointing to the certainty of being in heaven with him, this glorious future. He's not simply encouraging them with the idea that they'll go to heaven. He's not simply saying, look, I know you guys are really worried about the next phase of your life here, but don't worry, in the end, you get to go to heaven. It's better than that. But that is sometimes where our minds go. We just think that, you know, the good news is I will go to heaven if I believe the gospel, Part of that may come from an old translation of this text. Anybody grew up with the KJV? The King James Version translates the word rooms as mansions. So sometimes, you, you know, from that can be this idea that Jesus is saying, in my Father's house there's many mansions, these big, huge houses that you'll live in, and they'll be wonderful, and it'll be amazing, as if that is what will comfort us. But there's a couple problems with that. Uh, number one, the word doesn't, in this context, doesn't really mean mansions. It just means a dwelling. Okay? It could mean a room, could mean a house. It just means somewhere that you are. It's not focused on that mansion or that room being amazing. Don Carson says, the point is not the lavishness of each apartment or room, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his father's house. That's what he's showing them here. His intention is not to say, be comforted about what's in heaven, but be comforted about who's in heaven. That we would take great comfort in this promise that we have a glorious future with him in his very presence. Martin, actually, the Apostle Paul uh, felt this way. He he had this uh, very clearly in a couple different places. He doesn't really talk about the next life without talking about the Lord. Think about this. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He said, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? He doesn't stop there saying we'd rather be away from the body in heaven. He's saying at home with the Lord. That's his ultimate desire. And he says that even more clearly in Philippians 1. 21 through 24, listen to this. We, we know these verses, but look, look at what he's saying here. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's thinking about whether he's going to live or die. 
And he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Do you see his desire, this deep desire to be where Jesus is, to be with him? In the context, he's basically saying, look, I really want to just be with Jesus, but you guys need me here, so I'll stay. But see what he's saying? He's not saying he just wants to go to heaven. He wants to go to Christ. John's vision in Revelation 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so here's this booming voice. What is What does it say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The best part about heaven is not what will be there, but who will be there, that we will be in the presence of our Savior. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Now, that's an impossible statement, but he's just making a point. He'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him because Christ, being in the presence of Christ along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that is what heaven is. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Oh, to think of heaven without Christ it is the same thing as thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ, it is a day without sun, existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ, absurd. It is a sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without their stars. There cannot be heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element from which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven and heaven is Christ. Being with him. That's what we have, this glorious future. Listen to this. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology says this. When we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back. So he's talking about when we are in the presence of Christ. When we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know perfect love, peace, and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. It's so important that we understand this because what this means is that our attitude towards heaven should never be that things will be wonderful and I'll play golf all the time and no one will ever bother me or things like that. But ultimately, the the beauty and the power and the glory of heaven is that we will be in the presence of Christ, face to face with our Savior, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That should be our attitude. That should be the way that we see and it should help deepen our understanding of how glorious Christ is. 
that those who were closest to him and knew him best could not wait to be with him again. And I think there's this progression sometimes that we need to, it needs to happen, needs to take place. When you, sometimes when you're first a Christian, your excitement about heaven is really because you don't want to go to hell. And then I think as you get to know the Bible better, as you get to know Jesus more, you begin to see, it's not just that I don't want to go to hell. I actually do want to go to heaven. It sounds wonderful. But then there's this next phase where we begin to see, wait a minute, what I want more than anything else is to be with the Lord. That my desire is to depart and be with the Lord. And that happens. That's, this is all the more reason to pursue Him in His Word and through worship and prayer and all these things that we do, seeking to understand and know Him more, to know and get to that place where we see that's what I ultimately want and anything that happens between now and then is going to be okay because in the end I get to be with Him for all eternity. He is the best part of heaven. And he says, you know, that he, He's going to prepare a place and He's talking about being on the cross. That's how He prepares it for us. So that we can be reconciled to God through his payment for our sin. But he also talks about coming back. He says, I will come back. I will come again and take you to myself, not just to heaven, to myself. That where I am, you may be also. It is absolutely amazing. He is the best part of heaven. And I think one of the ways that we we grow in our love for him and our desire to know him more is to see that he's not only the best part of heaven, he's the means to really deeply believe that he is the means by which we go to heaven. Take a look at four through six. So Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, representing the disciples, thoughts, most of them probably, he's a little confused here. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In this, you just see that uncertainty. You see their troubled hearts. You see the way they're thinking, you know, we don't, we don't know what to do here. We're not sure what to do here, Jesus. And into that confusion and troubled heart, he says, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think it's so important that we understand not only do we have this glorious future with Jesus, but our glorious future depends on Jesus. Depends on him. It depends on what he does. He's the means by which we go to heaven. You see, he uses that word, the way. I'm the way. And that word literally means road, but he's using it here as a metaphor, which we do too. You know, the road to success or something like that. That's how he's using it. He's using it as a metaphor. And when you use the word way as a metaphor, you're talking about the means. You're talking about the how does this happen? And so to say, I am the way, is to say, I am the means. I am the how. And his emphasis, by the way, is on being the means. The the phrase, I am the way. Yes, he includes, he is also the truth and he is also the life. That really rounds out our understanding of what he's actually saying. Again, to quote Don Carson, he says, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the truth of God because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. Jesus is the life, the one who has life in himself, as it says in John 5, 26. And we looked at last week, too. I'm the resurrection and the life, right? John eleven twenty five. And that emphasis is it's, it's he's saying it's me. I'm how you get to heaven. 
And then notice he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this is where we, we know this verse very well for that part of it, right? And as I was praying about this, thinking about this week, I want you to think about something. Usually when we're talking about that, we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ. That yes, he is the one and only way. The only way to be saved is by grace, through faith in Christ alone. But is he saying this here to challenge the non-believers or to comfort his disciples? And I'll tell you, the only people listening in this moment are his disciples. I think there's an incredibly comforting nature to what he's saying. He's not ignoring his exclusivity. That's clearly taught in the verse. But I think it also deepens our understanding of his dependability. That we really can depend on him because no one else, no one comes to the Father except through him. And he's the one promising to get us to the Father. That word through, when it says no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a little Greek word that also means because of. So you could translate it that no one comes to the Father except because of me. He's putting all the emphasis on him and what he is going to do on the cross and what he has done from our perspective. So in the context of his followers, those who believe in him, and without non-believers around, that's when he says this. It's a powerful way of saying to the disciples and to you and I who believe that there's good news. There's only one person who can do this, who can get you to heaven, and that's the person making this promise to you. Maybe you remember the name Sully Sullenberger. You remember him? Uh, he's a pilot with U.S. Airways. And uh, on January 15th of 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York LaGuardia Airport. And at 3.25 p.m. they took off, and then two minutes later... It, the plane ran through a flock of birds. And all the passengers heard the thump, 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 thump of these birds bouncing off the plane. I'm sure it was a wonderful moment for the children. And, you know, everybody is getting worried. And then it, everything gets worse because it actually isn't all that uncommon for an airplane to fly through a flock of birds. But in this case, enough of the birds got into the engines that both engines shut out, turned off. And now this airplane is 3,200 feet in the sky and it's just soaring, coasting, not powered whatsoever. So there's hardly any time to come up with a solution. There's no way they can turn back to LaGuardia. There's really, there's just, the plane is doomed, basically, except for one extremely remote possibility, and that would be that this Captain Sullenberger would land the plane on the Hudson River. And so he radios to the control tower saying that we've lost both engines, we're going to try to land on the Hudson River, and everybody at the control tower is like, oh, this is going to be really bad. This is not going to happen. A landing like that had never been pulled off. It was just too difficult. And so in order to get everybody ready, Sullenberger comes over the loudspeaker and he tells them that they're going to try to land on the water and, and they need to brace for impact and get ready. And then in this, I mean, and just think about this for a moment. How uncertain are you in that moment, right? And then, by the grace of God, he brings in the plane. It has to be just perfect, because if the nose is too far down, it can catch and flip the whole plane. It has to be just right. And he just, again, no power, just glides it right onto the Hudson River, and all 150 passengers are fine, and everybody is saved. Now, here's what's interesting. When 
this happened. They, they interviewed him. He was on TV. That's why you might remember that name. Uh, newspapers. I mean, it was just a big deal. He got his 15 minutes of fame, and, and uh, he's a really interesting person. But one, one of the things that was said about him from one of the FAA officials who knew him very well and knew his uh, experience and tenure as a pilot, they said it's very interesting that that happened to Sully because if there's one pilot on the face of the planet that had the experience and skill to pull off that landing, it was him. Now back up. You're on the plane. It's going down. You're uncertain. Imagine he comes on the loudspeaker and says, listen, everybody, we're going down and we're going to do an impossible landing, but I want to tell you something. There is one person on the planet, one pilot on the planet that has the skill and abilities to do this, and he's the one flying the plane. That's how this is so comforting to you and I. This is when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's affirming that they believe in the one who can do it, the one who came to get us to heaven. It's extremely comforting because that takes the dependency off of ourselves, puts it all onto him, right? He is the one who can get us there. We're on his plane, and he's the one being who can do this for us, who can forgive us of our sins and have us declared righteous because of what he has done. And I think that can, how, how comforting that is when we're facing uncertainty, that we know no matter what we'll get there because we don't get there by our own works or by things that we do or don't do. We get there because of what he has done. The one who can save us is the one who promised to do it. So when we lose our job and we're really worried, we're really uncertain, we don't know what's going to happen, we should take peace in the fact that whatever happens between now and then, we will have that glorious future, and it depends on him, and he did all that was necessary on the cross for us to be there. Or when your marriage is in trouble, and you just don't know how you're going to keep going. There is such a comfort in knowing that no matter what happens, in the end, we're going to be with him. He's the one who gets us there. He's guaranteeing it. Or when you feel ashamed because you still struggle with that certain sin that you thought you'd be able to get past and it's been years. He's the one. He is the one who gets us there. Okay? So it's comforting. It's extremely comforting. Yes, it's challenging to the non-believer for him to say no one comes to the Father except through me and it's true. But for you and I who believe, it is incredibly comforting that the one who's promising to get us there is the only one who can do it. And if you're not a Christian, I think this is the opportunity for you to repent, to turn away from your sin and to realize you want to go to heaven. You want to be saved. And in turning to him and trusting him, that's how that happens. We receive salvation as a gift by grace through faith. So trust in the one who, as Spurgeon says, is the sum total of bliss, the foundation from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. So he is the means. Third, the certainty. Now look at verses 7 through 11. Let's talk about the certainty. And I think the other thing we want to realize here is when facing uncertainty, we want to believe that the love and the glory of the Father is seen in the Son, in Jesus. Okay, we want to believe that when we're facing uncertainty, we want to believe that we have a glorious future, that that glorious future depends on Jesus and is with Jesus. And thirdly, that the love and glory of the Father is seen here in Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's emphatically explaining that everything he does is perfectly in line with the will of God the Father. The disciples were convinced, I think, at this point that Jesus was for them. 
But you can see they have some questions about God. Remember, Jesus has said, in my father's house, and I will bring you there. Right. Look at this. Verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip in verse eight says, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. I think this kind of reveals that while they really trusted Jesus, they still were not certain about where they stood with God. And if they're going to go to him, are they going to be accepted? And that's when Jesus responds and he says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. And what he's, what he's interesting there, he's saying either believe my words or believe all these miracles that I've done that prove that I am united with the Father. I am one with the Father. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. There's no need for you to fear God the Father because you know me. And if you know me, you know him. He's, he's pointing out what Ritterboss says is Jesus' uninterrupted communion with the Father. Right? So throughout all eternity, they've had this perfect union with one another and with the Holy Spirit. And he's saying here now, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you want to know what the Father is like, you look at me. If you want to see what the Father would do in a situation, you look at what I did in a situation. And he says, look at the works. Right? Think about that. In, in John 2, he turned water into wine. That not only demonstrates Jesus' heart, but the, the heart of the Father In John 4, he healed a dying child, showing not only Jesus' compassion for people in need, but the Father's compassion for people in need. In John 5, he healed a paralyzed man, showing not only Jesus' compassion and power, but the Father's compassion and power for people who are paralyzed. In John 6, he fed the 5,000 and walked on water, showing the compassion and generosity of the Father and the power of the Father. In John 9, Jesus healed a blind man, showing the Father's Desire for eyes to be opened, to see the glory of Christ and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, in John 11, he raised Jesus, raises Lazarus from the dead, which demonstrates the Father's love and power to raise from the dead. That's why Jesus says, if you've seen the Father or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And our certainty of heaven should rest not only in the finished work of Christ, but also in that permanent and eternal union between the Father and the Son. And and Jesus, of course, knows what it is to be loved by the Father. It's you and I that struggle to really believe we are loved by the Father. But but we we want it. Uh, Elton John, Sir Elton John, I believe, uh, was, was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine a few years ago. And he was talking about how his parents never held him or told him that they loved him. He said, quote, I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time and I'm still trying to prove things to him. And the interviewer asked what he meant by that. And he said, quote, I still do things and say, Dad, you would have loved this. I mean, we, why, why do we long so much 
for the approval and the love of our, of our earthly father. Sarah Schreff is a blogger in, uh, in a blog entitled Still a Daughter. She talks about how she got to spend a week with her dad and they had had a very long period of uh, difficulty in their relationship. Uh, they had uh, all through her high school years and college years and they had really struggled to get along and then uh, at this point in her life, they lived about 1,200 miles apart, but they were able to go on this vacation together. And even though their relationship was so strained, at the end of the vacation, when they were saying goodbye, this is what happened. She says, my dad hugged and kissed me. His arms are still so strong and tight. No one's hugs feel like his. He told me again how thankful he was that we could be there. And he told me he was so proud of me. And I have to admit, After hearing those words from my dad, my 29-year-old self was filled. I think I can guess that my dad's been proud of me. I'm at least sure he's not disappointed in who I am or what I've done with my life. But hearing him say it to me, despite all our past and its residue, despite my independence from him, despite the deeply affirming relationship I have with my husband, it was like I've needed nothing else. Now, the reason that we have that longing, that desire to have that love and affirmation from our earthly father is because it's a direct channel to what we really deeply long for is that approval, that love, that affection, that welcome of our heavenly father. And with that, nothing else matters. And Jesus here is making it abundantly clear That if they can sense his acceptance of them, that he welcomes sinners and eats with them, that he came to die to pay for the sins of his people, that he came to save people. If they can see what he's like, then they know what the father is like. If they feel his commitment to them, then they know the father's commitment to them. If they can feel his love for them, then they know the father's love for them. If they see his promises to them, they can know that those are the promises from the father as well. Our certainty regarding heaven, if we are believers, should rest in the union between the Father and the Son and their determination to save us by grace through faith. Our saving union with Christ, which is by faith, is founded in Christ's eternal union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. That's why we can be certain. Because everything we see in Jesus, we also know about the Father So what uncertainty do you need to speak that truth into this week or this year? What is it, that thing that you know what it is? You've been worried about it. You've been driving yourself nuts. And maybe your wife too. Or your husband. Who knows what's going to happen? God's in control. But the one thing we can do in the meantime is remember that we have this guaranteed glorious future with Christ because of Christ and because of the great love and welcoming of our Heavenly Father. That's pretty comforting. Let's pray. Father, to know that your love shines down upon us because of what Christ has done for us and to know that when Jesus comes back and raises us from the dead and brings us to you, to know that you will run to us like the prodigal son or like the father who ran to the prodigal son. Would you help us to feel that love and not to doubt 
Would you help us to know deeply that we are forgiven and we are welcome in your presence all because of what Jesus has done? And would you give us, give us a, a, an ever-increasing desire to depart and be with the Lord but be willing to stay here and continue to make disciples and do your will until it's our time? Give us great peace knowing that we will be with Christ and you and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.